Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore and the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash The Boar's Nest. Hey everyone, today we're featuring a chat with two members of the Nashville-based string band Old Crow Medicine Show. We've got lead singer Ketch Secor and drummer Jerry Pentecost. Since forming in 1998, Old Crow has helped preserve folk and blues songs that often predate even World War II. Of course, in the best of the folk tradition, they put their own spin on those songs and also have written a number of their own tunes. Old Crow's most successful song to date, the platinum-certified Wagon Wheel, was written around a Bob Dylan course catch heard on an old Dylan bootleg. In 2013, Darius Rucker of Hootie and the Blowfish covered that song, making it a contemporary country music hit, and even earned a Grammy. On today's episode, Bruce Tedlam talks to Catch Secor and Jerry Pentecost about Old Crow's latest album, Paint This Town. They share how they're raising awareness around the major contributions black musicians like Ray Charles and D. Ford Bailey have made to country music. And then Ketch recalls Old Crow's early days when they went through what he calls hillbilly boot camp, learning how to make whiskey, farm tobacco, and also shoot groundhogs. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's Bruce Sedlam with Catch Secor and Jerry Pentecost of Old Crow Medicine Show. So we're welcoming one third of the Old Crow Medicine Show. We got Catch Secor and Jerry Pentecost. Welcome. Thank you so much for doing this. Thanks for having us. It's wonderful to be here. You have a new album out on ATO Records, is that right? That's right. And it's called Paint This Town, and it is a very ambitious, sprawling album with a lot of different styles and a much heavier sound, even than your last album, which people said had a very heavy sound. Can you tell me just a little bit about making this record, how it all came together? Well, sure. Thanks for that introduction of it. I like anything that sounds ambitious, sounds <laughs> cool to me, especially here in New York City. So yeah, we're just trying to keep up with the times, man. There's a lot to sing about and talk about in times like these. And this was the record that we made in face masks from a six-foot distance in an unvaccinated space because they weren't available yet, just waiting for the final uh, green light to go down to the, the Walmart in Franklin and get, get our first shot. Uh, it's, I said before it was very ambitious. It's a very rocking record for you guys. More electric guitar. Uh, it sort of reminds me that there's more rock and roll in country right now than there is on the pop charts. I think it has to do with the Americana music scene being such a wide open platform to, you know, that spectrum of sound. Ever since that term was coined, it was, I've thought of it as sort of the lint trap in the 
spin cycle of the country music dryer. <laughs> uh, you know, everything that isn't keeping up on the charts gets collected. And that includes Loretta Lynn, you yeah. know, some of the, you know, mainstay performers. Anybody who hasn't had a hit since 1990 is suddenly Americana. Mm -hmm. um, and then also a lot of, um, you know, new fresh faces or folks like us that have been around since before Americana or like Gillian Welch, who predates Americana by 10 years when it was called Old Country. And, you know, like Gillian and David, we always wanted to rock, even though we, we set a course with acoustic instruments. And that's the pathway Old Crow picked was to be an acoustic rock band. But that doesn't prohibit us from plugging in every now and then. Well, you do on this album. Can you tell me a little bit about Reasons to Run? I just thought it was such a beautiful song. Sure. Well, I started this band with my best friend. Uh, and boy, we had a, we've had a long road together. We met in the seventh grade in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia and both found this calling to, to go to Nashville, really. We wanted to go to Nashville when we were in the, in the eighth grade, what we really wanted to do was to get somebody to go into the, um, the corner store and buy us some beer and some cigarettes, and then we'd go to Nashville. We wanted to hitchhike the whole way. We were writing songs together. This is my pal, Critter Fuquay. And Critter spent in and out, you know, 15, 20 years in this 23-year-old band, but was always a little bit in, a little bit out because of the things that Critter needed to do to, you know, find stability and you know, solid ground on his own, which he's found beautifully, uh, but is found largely outside of this professional workscape. So, I, I mean, the truth is, that's a song about saying goodbye to your, you know, your collaborator, your your sidekick. Mm -hmm. It's also, is it from his point of view? Because, of course, the lines are, you know, running out of reasons to run, which is a great, great line. Is that something that comes from you as well, that, that you were wondering, how long can I keep doing this? Yeah, for me, I had this one chance encounter with uh, Merle Haggard, and we did, a, we did a, a tour together. You know, it was the most amazing tour. It kicked off in Sierra Vista, Arizona, which I had never been to before and probably won't ever go back to because it's hard to sell tickets without the hag in Sierra Vista. It's way down <laughs> south. It's right by Nogales. It's a military base. And when we, o we opened up for him and the governor came out and he had this like 60 or 100 pound bag of onions which he presented to Merle Haggard and said this is the the new crop of the season you know and just that confluence of ag the hag and the military <laughs> the proximity to Mexico everything about it was just beautiful and so country music you know, we'd met that night and he whispered in my ear. It was so beautiful. And a couple of years later, I heard a quote in which she, they asked him about, you know, reflecting on his career. And he said, the part I didn't realize was that I was signing up for a 50-year bus ride. And there's something about it that just gave me chills uh, and hurt. You know, it hurts to think about that because a 50-year bus ride sounds real lonesome. I know it's what you got to do to live this way and make shows and make the make the date and put on the gig and make everybody dance and cavort and clap and applaud and maybe make love afterwards. But the toll it takes on you, it hurts and it'll, it'll run you down. What was it like being around Merle Haggard? Did he talk about his writing or songs or, or was it all business? He's he gets the bag of onions, sings his songs and keeps going. Uh, a very soulful person, just like a, a Mother Teresa kind of vibe, seemed to float, had a like a Ben Kenobi kind of vibe. <laughs> I just wanted to be close to him. The one time that we actually talked, I could feel it. He came really close up to my ears, and I could feel his whiskers touch me. <laughs> it was so great. And he whispered, sounds good, son. That's fabulous. I do want to talk mainly about the new album because it's a great album. But for people who don't know your whole history, there are some pretty amazing twists and turns along the way. But first of all, for both of you, did you grow up with music in your house? How did you come to this? I told a story the other day about how I was hitchhiking in Tallahassee and the, the bus picked me up and that's how I joined the band. 
and Mason still thinks that's how I got in the band. Mm-hmm. But uh, ultimately, I my real dad, which I didn't really grow up with, he he was a drummer, and so I remember him having this big red drum set around the house. So from early ages, I always wanted to play drums. Couldn't afford one until I was 15. Started gigging as soon as I graduated. Became a drummer for hire in my mid-20s and randomly met Catch backstage at the Ryman after uh, one of the fabulous New Year's Eve shows, so a few years ago. And I thought, who is that drummer? I'd always wanted to have a real drummer in the band. We always kind of flirted with drummers, and and there were enough percussionists in Old Crow, because we are always been a multi-instrumentalist band. Critter Mm -hmm. could play drums. Corey was a good drummer. But I didn't actually get together with Jerry because I thought we would he would join Old Crow. We got together to talk about Ray Charles yeah, and about working on a project together celebrating Ray Charles and, and kind of unpacking the story and legacy and looking through the closet as we talked about the story of black country music in Nashville, kind of its uh, wayward path. And maybe that record will come out. One of the things that's happened since this conversation, which was four years ago, uh, and and ongoing conversations as we talked and met, you know, Multiple several times, times met with labels. Yeah. One of the things that's come about is that uh, finally the Country Music Hall of Fame uh, has made Ray Charles a member. He wasn't a member. No, he wasn't. Shocking, right? Yeah, yeah. The, really shocking. Um, the woman that accepted the award, she said that the modern sounds in country and western was it's still to this day the biggest crossover country record of all time. More people who didn't listen to country started to listen to country because of that record than ever. Like it's amazing to think about. And and here we are, you know, like I don't know, fifty some odd years later after that record, even more that you know, like yeah, now it was, we're, it was sixty sixty one. Sixty one, yeah. Well, yeah. And your your dad, what um uh, what, was he a jazz drummer? Was he a rock drummer? You know, honestly, I, I, I'm going to venture to say R&B. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like I, we've had some some contact over the years, but like we're, you know, it's it's not what 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 you would ex- expect slash hope for. So um, I grew up in a in a household. I grew up in a typical low income '90s household. You know, like I I kind of listen to everything. My friends played rock music, and so they needed a drummer. When I got my drum set couldn't wait so I, I started off playing rock and punk rock and you know anything that I could get my hands on at that time and it wasn't until I think um I got in my like early 20s that I discovered Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd and all of that stuff and and then the early 20s was country because those were the gigs that were happening around Nashville I decided that like if I wanted to be being blessed and privileged to be from Nashville and like wanted to be a member of this scene probably should learn how to play country. And actually the way that happened, I got a gig that I was forced to like have to learn how to play country shuffles, trade beat, straight eights, you know, all the stuff that would require you to play. And it's deceptively difficult. It it requires a lot of patience and and listening. So your ears, I think, become your your biggest asset. So I I just dove in. I went into the history. And in this past Sunday, also Eddie Bears was inducted, who probably will go down as the greatest country drummer of all time. So, you know, you have recordings from all these greats that you listen to, you do the homework and, but like it, it whether you stay in the scene, you know, because I, know, I have a lot of friends that kind of jump in and out. So, mm-hmm. so I feel very fortunate to, to be in this band playing real country music. I don't know Eddie Bears. Who did he play with? What was his style? So he's currently the the drummer, one of the house drummers for the Opry. But he he's a, a descendant of uh, Larry London was the the main guy, which was another major session drummer. I think it was like a third of the songs that were in the top forty on country and ninety. He played drums on. Wow. Everything from Brooks and Dunn to Vince. I mean, you name it. Any new or and by new, I mean 90s, you know, like country artists, Garth, like all those guys. Like he, he's he's played on a track with just about everybody. So he'll probably go down as the most recorded country drummer of all time. And I loved all that 90s country stuff, too, growing up in the Shenandoah Valley, because that's all I heard. Yeah. Country radio was the only thing. It was out of that or pop radio. There wasn't anyth- anything else to listen mm-hmm. to. And I loved that kind of music, but it wasn't doing that much. It didn't make me want to go out and play those songs. Yeah. And for me, it was the discovery of uh, the folk music of the 1960s that just pulled me in. It was like a magnet to my soul, man. 
And, and what was that? What was the first song you heard that you, you can remember? Uh, it, it happened for me um, that my uncle went away to the Philippines to teach, and he left us all of his stuff. And uh, among all of his stuff, all these records. And I heard all these records when I was 12. And I, I remember saying to my mom, okay, it's time to take all my toys out. I found the records now. I don't need toys anymore. And my mom cried, like boxing them all up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the records were so great. It was a lot of Motown, mostly Motown. Mm-hmm. I, I heard so many great songs, 12 years old. Um, but then I heard this record called Live at Newport Broadside. And that's when I learned to play my first song. I was 12 years old. I want to sing a little bit of it for you. In the state of Mississippi many years ago, a boy of 14 years got a taste of Southern law. He saw his friend a-hanging, his color was his crime. The blood upon his jacket left a brand upon his mind. Too many martyrs and too many dead. Too many lies, too many empty words were said. Too many times for too many angry men. Oh, let it never be again. It's called The Ballad of Medgar Evers by Phil Oakes. And I didn't know who Medgar Evers was, but I knew that he was worth marching for. Was it that? Was it the militancy of the song that you you loved? It was a feeling that like that civil rights mattered and that for some reason it spoke to me. My first job was working in a barber shop. I shined shoes and I would hear all the old men talk. They were all bigots, like really bigoted dudes, old men. You know, I lived in this in the in a town that had a sidewalk preacher. You know, it was nineteen eighty six and I was, you know, nine or something, and I'd walk to work and carry my little box and I got a dollar a shine and the, the bigot barbers would just talk all we had a we had the first african-american governor of any state his name was douglas wilder great great leader and i felt like well that's what phil oaks is singing about phil oaks is is making sure everybody knows that we have to stand up and make sure that equality gets hammered out and you can only do it with a hammer and that's when i heard Pete Seeger sing about having a hammer and heard Pete sing about getting waist deep in the big muddy. And all of these songs all got me ready to hear Bob Dylan. I was primed. I had heard the other sounds. But then when I heard Bob, it was like finding, you know, Ecclesiastes for the first time. We'll dig into Bob Dylan's influence on Catch Secor. But first, let's take a quick break and then we'll be back with more from Bruce Hedlum. Catch the core and Jerry Pentecost of Old Crow Medicine Show. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on creditworthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at AppleCard.com. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs, on-demand, temp-to-hire, part-time, or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242-424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. 
Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History. If you've watched a professional tennis match recently, you'll know that fans had this amazing new tool at their disposal. It was created by the consulting company Infosys and the Association of Tennis Professionals. It's an immersive 3D viewing experience for tennis fans, which allows them to watch matches from new angles, get real-time statistics, and better understand the inner workings of the game and its athletes. Basically, a completely new, data-driven way to appreciate a tennis match. It's been a huge hit, and I'm proud to say that the Infosys Tennis Platform earned first place in the customer experience category at the Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event held at Mobile World Congress in Las Vegas that celebrates customers who've boldly innovated for the sake of meaningful change. And I think it's important to point out that innovation like this doesn't just require a great idea and exploit some great underlying technology. It takes courage. Because tennis is a game with a long history and some pretty powerful traditions. I mean, you can only wear white at Wimbledon. Still, it's the 21st century. And here was an idea that said we can dramatically change the way a fan watches a match. We can feed them data. We can allow them to see things they could never see before with the naked eye, or even conventional camera angles. If you want to turn a world upside down, you have to have a pretty strong backbone. That's a lot of what the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards are all about. Finding people and companies who show that kind of boldness. I encourage you to enter. It's a fantastic event and a great way to be recognized for your brave, outside-the-box thinking in front of the industry's most influential leaders. And an even better way to say, I told you so. You can enter by July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. We're back with more from Bruce Hedlum, Ketch Secor, and Jerry Pentecost of Old Crow Medicine Show. Was your first instrument the guitar, or were you already playing the violin by then? No, I learned the fiddle last. Um, I learned a harmonica. My first instrument was the juice harp. I learned it in the fourth grade for a school play, uh, and I, I could do it right away. It was So I felt like kind of called into folk music, and then I learned the harmonica and then the guitar. I learned to play the banjo when I was 15, and that was a really important turn. Um, that's when I was up at Exeter, and uh, I, I got a banjo teacher because I wanted to play like this guy Happy Traum did as a New York banjo picker, played with Bob Dylan on this song called You Ain't Going Nowhere. I thought that song was so great. Ooh, we ride me high. Tomorrow's the day that my bride's gonna come. Oh, Lord, are we gonna fly down into the easy chair? Well, Happy Traum plays it like a bluegrass player with a nice, gentle roll. And I petitioned the um, the Student Affairs Council to get me a banjo teacher because they didn't have one at, at the world's most elite preparatory school in New England. <laughs> they didn't have a banjo teacher. Yeah, we got three Latin teachers. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I could have learned Aramaic. But I had to petition to get me a damn banjo teacher. Well, I did, and they accepted it. But then they found me a teacher who played claw hammer. And that was the big fork in the road for me, was learning this primitive, ultra-Americana, the style that came from Africa. The, 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 the part of, the, of the, the African instrument that is the American banjo, that is most from West Africa, is when you play it like a drum, because that's what it is. It's the same thing as what Jerry's got over here, except instead of beaten on it with sticks, you play it with your finger. And the revolutionary thing about this is that it's both rhythm and melody. It's all about this drone string. The drone is always singing no matter what you do. And it just, uh, it fills everything out. When I play the fiddle, it's the same way. I always like to keep a drone string rungin'. It's the same principle behind the bagpipes. A lot of folk music use it. The hammer dulcimer, the oud. It's all about the drone. That's when you know that you're, like, calling in the, the herd. Right. It's like out on the step kind of feelings. Mm-hmm. Now, you were also 
when you were a teenager, you wrote your first big hit. We should just tell the story of Wagon Wheel. Because I think for a lot of people, it's like, will the circle be unbroken or something? They didn't even know one person wrote it. It's got this great history. So just tell me a bit about that song. Well, sure. So uh, following my little chronology here, once I was ready to discover Bob, I was ready to go deep. And I was like a Bob scholar in high school. I mean, my math teacher was flunking me. They were calling home to say what's wrong with catch. They busted me smoking pot. I was the only kid in the history of this high school that didn't get thrown out for burning grass. Uh, And thankfully, I got caught with the kid with the highest GPA in the grade. But um, by the time I was about 17, I'd listened to every Bob Dylan record ever made. And then I was on the bootlegs. So that means I was up, this is about 1994, that fall. So Dylan had put out um, probably World Gone Wrong at that point, which was the second of his 90s back-to-folk music albums, which were just phenomenal. Uh, And it was maybe the year before Time Out of Mind, which was a Grammy Award-winning fabulous album um, that gave him a hit to make you feel my love, which Garth Brooks took to number one. And just a side story here, Wagon Wheel, when Darius took it to number one, was the second time that Bob Dylan had a number one country hit as a songwriter and not as a vocalist. So tell me more. How did the song come about? Well, the the, uh, aforementioned Critter was over at the Virgin Megastore uh, in in, uh, London, England uh, with his mom and dad. And, you know, he had a 20-pound note, and he bought this bootleg off um, out in front of the Virgin Megastore where you could buy all the good shit. So um, he bought this thing called like the Genuine Columbia Bootleg Series, not made by Columbia. And it had some really good stuff on it. 1972, I think, Sam Peckinpah directs this film called Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. I'm convinced that after he wrote Rock Me Mama, he's like, nah, this is very good. And then he wrote Knocking on Heaven's Door. To me, the songs are sort of brother and sister. I think that Knocking on Heaven's Door is, of course, a far superior tune. But he left this scrap. It was about, you know, 36 seconds or 45 seconds. And I heard it on this tape that Critter sent me because he dubbed it. And he sent it up to me in New Hampshire at my high school. And I was, God, I couldn't get that song out of my head. Rock me, mama, like the wind and the rain. Oh, I loved it so much. Uh, And then, you know, one afternoon, this was like the third or fourth time I tried to rewrite a Bob Dylan song. I remember when I was a kid, I rewrote the Lord's Prayer into a song. I was always taking something and turning it into a song, wiggling it around. I'd I'd take leaves of grass. I mean, that thing is full of songs. Or uh, anyway, um, so I got to to Rock Me Mama and wrote, penned some quick autobiographical verses about getting out of New Hampshire and going down south where I felt I belonged. I was going to move to North Carolina. I was going to join an old-time string band, be a picker, man. I was going to hitchhike the whole way. And I put in every place name I could think of, even ones that I'd never been to and just imagined. Uh, And it's funny because I feel like I wrote myself a bus ticket, like back to Merle in that 50-year bus ride. Mm Mm-hmm. Like I was, you know, 17 and just dreaming about all the places I want to go. I didn't dream that far. It took me not much longer to start dreaming about Manitoba. You know, that's when Old Crow started. Old Crow was the seed of a dream about the Canadian prairie provinces. I was like, what is it going to take to get way out there, man? But anyway, I wrote this song real quick and then I sang it for my friends. I was like, wow, that thing is good. And we called it Rock Me Mama. Uh, and uh, I played it everywhere I went. Was that on your first album then? Well, then, um, then Old Crow started, and we moved to Nashville, and we had then we had a manager, and and it was time to to select our tunes, and we played, you know, what we still called Rock Me Mama. But when we were living up in East Tennessee, not far from Johnson City, we had this kind of pill popping friend that was a Vietnam vet who had the tobacco allotment behind the house we were squatting in. It didn't have running water or, or electric or anything. And he came down. He's like, what What are you doing here? He sort of befriended us and, you know, was sort of looking for a party himself. One day we were doing a show in Hickory, North Carolina, and we played Rock Me Mama like we, all, like we often did. And afterwards, he came up to me. He's real high in the parking lot. And he said, you just need to play that wagon wheel about everywhere you go. And it's the first time I'd ever heard it called that. 
And I was like, wow, that's got a ring to it. But at first I was like, it felt a little weird. It was like too, it felt like corny or really? Would anybody like a song called Wagon Wheel? It's called Rock Me Mama. But anyway, by the time we got to Nashville, this old hillbilly had definitely renamed it. So we we played it for the label and, you know, they wanted to cut it. Um, but then we had to get it published. Uh, so um, we got really lucky because we had this publishing administrator who knew how to get a hold of Bob's manager. And, and Bob's manager said, wrote back to us a few weeks later saying, okay, Bob approves it. He's going to call it a 50-50 Secor-Dylan split. Oh, but he wants you to know that Dylan didn't write it. And we're like, what? And then he says, Dylan says that he got it from Arthur Crudup. Well, I read in the liner notes of this song that Bob said he got Rock Me Mama from, um, called Rock Me Baby, which is like, rock me baby. Mm, 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 mm. Really, there's nothing about the wind and the rain or a southbound train, but that's what Bob said. So I took it for his word. But in the liner notes, um, it says, uh, oh, and Arthur Crudup uh, wishes to attribute his recording Rock Me Baby to the late, great Big Bill Brunsey. So that would have been Chicago in the 20s. Big Boy would have been Memphis in, in the 50s. So if you believe the story that Bob spun from Big Bill to Big Boy to Bob to me and Old Crow to Darius, mm -hmm. then in that near-long century gestation, the song sees the shared authorship of all five of us to become this big hit. I want to ask you about uh, two more people who are very important in your career. And the first is Doc Watson. Can you tell that story? Sure. We were on the street corner. It was the 5th of July, because on the 4th of July, we made whiskey. We made it with a, a water distiller that we got from the old Linville Hospital, because me and Critter were cutting rebar steaks there for manpower job. Mm -hmm. We did a lot of odd jobs back then, and, and it got us a lot of the kind of color that we used to write songs later. It was all this period of time that I thought of as like a hillbilly boot camp for Old Crow. Because, you know, I mean, I learned how to play. I mean, I was from the South, but like I went to prep school and I learned to play the banjo. I learned to play Southern music in New Hampshire. I learned to play Southern music in New Hampshire from a guy from New Hampshire who went South to learn to play Southern music and then went back to New Hampshire and then taught it to me and I went back down South. And he learned all the good shit from the 70s, back when the true vine was still intact when you could find players who didn't play bluegrass, they only played old time and they had for generations, but that died out in the seventies by the time that I came around. So we were a new crop and I thought about us like a kind of new lost city ramblers. We were like the college kids, you know, with the beards who were like gonna not go to Vietnam. Instead, we were gonna like grow turnips and shit, and wood, Woodstock. Or like nitty gritty or. Like nitty gritty out in Colorado was. Right. Yeah, just like that. Only, you know, uh, in the 90s instead of in the 70s, which honestly probably wasn't as nearly as much fun. Up in Northwest North Carolina in the 90s, where we found ourselves living on a 600-acre thing that we were renting and working tobacco and cutting rebar and making whiskey and planting by the lunar signs and doing all the zany stuff that we were doing out of the Foxfire book to try and authenticate country music and sort of like baptize ourselves and make ourselves worthy to sing songs about like pig meat and, you know, um, groundhogs and shooting groundhogs and skinning them and making banjos, all the, the crazy stuff that we did that felt like a kind of important spiritual ceremony get, got us in touch with the great shaman of all these things. We were busking on the street corner. We made whiskey and we were all hung over. But on the 5th of July, we knew we wanted to go out and make a buck because all the tourists were in from Charlotte. So we walked down to the big corner store in Boone, the, dr the drug store there. And we set up, we bust there before. And uh, this lady said, my daddy loves this kind of music. Ian's going to be here for a while. And we said, well, I don't know. Just come back or tip us or don't. We're, we're, we're all hungover. She, she came back about an hour later. She walked her dad, Doc Watson, across the street. And I just remember being dumbstruck, seeing him walk out of a red Jeep Cherokee. And jaywalk across the street, you know, he's blind and his, his daughter's leading him as Nancy Watson, later became a great friend. And then Doc comes up and he just anoints us right there on the corner, man. It was so beautiful. I can't believe it happened. I still can't believe it happened. And as it was happening, I thought, oh my God, it's happening. All of the things that me and Critter thought were going to happen are going to happen. And what did he say? 
when you you, said, were, you were playing when we you were came playing. up? We were right in the middle of a tune called Oh My Little Darling that goes like Jimmy holds the wagon, Jimmy holds the line, cross my sides laughing, see the horses flying, oh my little darling. You know, like a real old time rake and rude and rambling kind of number. He says, well, son, that's some of the most authentic old time music I've heard in a long time. <laughs> <laughs> he gave like a radio quote. <laughs> Nice. And then and then he said, I'd like you boys to play my festival that I have in honor of my son, Merle. And he brought us to the Merle Fest. Wow. So the other person I want to ask about is uh, Marty Stewart. Well, after Doc found us at, at the and brought us to Merle Fest, the next thing that happened was that the Grand Ole Opry found us at Merle Fest. Like we always knew to do, we busked. We did a stage show. Doc got us a slot. And Alice Gerard hosted, brought us on at the traditional stage, but we sucked. We we weren't used to playing on microphones. We were all out of tune. Everybody was kind of edgy, and we put on a terrible set. And also, nobody was there. Uh, and so afterwards, we licked our wounds, and we said, well, let's just open up a case right here by this fountain. We'll call this a stage of our own. And we just started busking. All the people came. We were the, we were the talk of the festival. And uh, afterwards, we got a phone call from Sally Williams at the Opry. He said, you know, I saw your festival set at Merlefest at the, that fake stage you made up. I want you to come to Nashville and do the same thing out in front of the Grand Ole Opry. So the summer of um, 2000, we all came down to Nashville on the weekends. And we'd stay in a, like a $26 crack motel. And, and we'd busk in front of the Grand Ole Opry. And then our shift would end about 9 o'clock. We'd go downtown. We'd busk on Lower Broadway. God, we were making like $800 on a Friday night. And we'd come back to that crack motel and we'd buy two cases of beer and a carton of smokes and we would just just feel like kings. <laughs> and we were the high rollers in those motels. And it was a different Nashville. Like people weren't clamoring to move to Nashville. There was like the country music thing and there was health care. But, you know, you could have bought those houses for nothing. Well, it was around that time that we stumbled into Marty Stewart um, when we found that the Uncle Dave Macon Days Festival um, had had a $500 prize. We thought, well, let's go down there and win it. And we went down to Murfreesboro, and we were busking there, making a big hoot, and Marty Stewart walked in. He was the grand mason of the festival that year. And he brought us into his fold right away and um, made sure that we played the Opry. He hosted our, our first Opry debut at the Ryman, you know, which which came just three months after that. And then, you know, had us open for him, had us out to the house, made us know that his Nashville was a place that we were welcome. Mm -hmm. And he, what was your first performance like in the Opry? It was in January when the Opry would traditionally move from its home at the Opry House down to its old home at the Ryman Auditorium. And we all got dressed up in suits. And um, we were all so nervous. Critter was so nervous, he threw up in the trash can right there in the wings before we walked on. And we were all just sweating bullets. And we came out there, and Marty had given us each little gigaws to wear. Um, it was really helpful, honestly. To Kevin, our Gitjo player, he gave a pair of glasses that had belonged to some old Hollywood movie star. And to me, he gave a funny kind of velvety bow tie that had belonged to Slim Whitman. And um, everybody had one little thing to like borrow for the set because Marty's a collector. He's got all this crazy uh, memorabilia. And we did some old-time hokum songs that brought the house down. And when they asked for an encore, we didn't know what to do, so we just played the same song again. And then they wanted another encore. <laughs> Honestly, it felt the closest that I've ever felt to feeling like Hank Williams must have felt that time that he made his Opry debut, or just to be Hank Williams. It was like there was no nothing digital about the world. It was like an analog moment. We were on AM radio. We were not on the internet. Mm -hmm. It was the year 2000. We, I didn't have a cell phone. 
we, we were, I was still carrying a spiral notebook in my back pocket and, and the crowd in a 120 year old gospel union tabernacle all rose to its feet because we were playing hundred year old music that made them feel joy. We have to take one last quick break, but after that, we'll be back with more from Bruce Headlam, Catch Secor, and Jerry Pentecost. Snag a job is where America goes to hire, with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand, temp to hire, part time, or full time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242-424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History. If you've watched a professional tennis match recently, you'll know the fans had this amazing new tool at their disposal. It was created by the consulting company Infosys and the Association of Tennis Professionals. It's an immersive 3D viewing experience for tennis fans, which allows them to watch matches from new angles, get real-time statistics, and better understand the inner workings of the game and its athletes. Basically, a completely new, data-driven way to appreciate a tennis match. It's been a huge hit, and I'm proud to say that the Infosys Tennis Platform earned first place in the customer experience category at the Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event held at Mobile World Congress in Las Vegas that celebrates customers who've boldly innovated for the sake of meaningful change. And I think it's important to point out that innovation like this doesn't just require a great idea and exploit some great underlying technology. It takes courage. Because tennis is a game with a long history and some pretty powerful traditions. I mean, you can only wear white at Wimbledon. Still, it's the 21st century. And here was an idea that said we can dramatically change the way a fan watches a match. We can feed them data. We can allow them to see things they could never see before with the naked eye, or even conventional camera angles. If you want to turn a world upside down, you have to have a pretty strong backbone. That's a lot of what the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards are all about. Finding people and companies who show that kind of boldness. I encourage you to enter. It's a fantastic event and a great way to be recognized for your brave, outside-the-box thinking in front of the industry's most influential leaders. And an even better way to say, I told you so. You can enter by July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer helped shape the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed The Boar's Nest, Sue's Place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, would spur each other on to tap into something bigger, realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Bacharach as Shel Silverstein and TJ Osborne as Johnny Cash alongside a full ensemble cast. Audible invites you to enter the Boar's Nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of Outlaw Country Music. Listen now at audible.com slash the Boar's Nest.
We're back with the rest of Bruce's interview with Ketch and Jerry of Old Crow Medicine Show. There's a song on your record I do want to talk about, which is DeFord Bailey Rides Again. Well, it's DeFord Rides Again, but it's about this incredible character, DeFord Bailey. Can you talk a bit about that? When we were working on songs for the record, Ketch reached out to me and he was like, you know, like I've been working on this idea of writing a song about DeFord Bailey. And so like we got together and uh, and we just kind of started talking about it, you know, like talking about him as an individual, you know, like what he stood for. And it kind of actually I never told you this, but it made me think back to like in my early days of, you know, like being this drummer for hire, you know, like and and when I was starting to play country music, people would ask me, you know, like, like, do you want to be in country music? And I was like, why? There's no black people in country music. And every so often somebody would say, what about D4 Bailey? And I never knew who he was. And, you know, like, we've played the Opry for years now. They've been members since, what, 2012, 2013. Uh, there's not a really strong presence of him at the Opry. So, like, as a African-American individual, when I'm there, you know, like, I, I'm sensing for, you know, like, a feeling of belonging, you know. And, uh, and so, like, if you don't see representation, you know, like, then it's kind of hard to, to figure. So... So, yeah, so, like, I was really excited about resurrecting this this legacy, this, you know, like, this wrongdoing, because that's kind of, you know, like, how, how I look at it, this fallen soldier or pioneer of the Opry. You know, everybody knows about Roy Acuff and Minnie Pearl, but people seldom know about D4 Bailey, and he is a, a member of the Country Music Hall of Fame. It only took them, what, 20-some-odd years after he died for them to do it, and, mm. you know, him being on the show when the 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 term or the name Grand Old Opry was introduced for the first time being the first African American member you know like there's just um there's a lot that's missing so you know like we wanted to tell this the song about the legacy and and the life of D Ford Bailey and it's it's actually you know kind of kind of sad he was the first performer wasn't he on the radio show yeah, yeah. the grand, the Grand Old Opry opened yeah. with an African American performer he was a harmonica player. The harmonica and wizard. They called him the harmonica wizard, and he would open up the, 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 um, the shows on WSM by playing the sound of the freight train called the Pan American that would blow, that would blow as it went by the, the broadcast tower. And then he would sing his songs, and he did fox chases and all this mimicry. And, you know, he was the grandchild of slaves born in Smith County, Tennessee, 1899. He had polio when he was a kid. As an adult, he was about four foot nine. And um, he became the very first African-American recording artist in Nashville. And he did that in the 20s. His albums were released to both a white and black audience. His acclaim from the Opry, he was so popular. He was a national touring act, and he would go out on the road with Bill Monroe, uh, and you, they would have to put him in a suitcase to bring him into some of these hotels where he wasn't welcome as a black man in the South. He was so small he could ride in a steamer trunk. It, it, it kind of makes me want to cry when I think about that. Did he perform on stage with white performers? Oh, yeah. And so when the Opry would go out on the tours during the weeks, because, you know, the Opry was a weekend show, mm -hmm. but all through the weeks, Opry members could play anywhere that they could get a booking. Uh, and that's where they could really make money because the Opry didn't pay. So he would tour with Uncle Dave Macon, who was the biggest star of this, this era in which hillbilly music and vaudeville were sort of thick as thieves. And before anybody even called it country and western, it was just called hillbilly music. D4 Bailey was a hillbilly star. Mm -hmm and the first black recording artist in Nashville. So we, we knew we wanted to, to resurrect the story. Um, in the 1980s, after, or the early 80s, after D. Ford had been kicked off the Opry, had his name dragged through the mud, became a shoeshine uh, operator. Okay, let's back up. Why did he get kicked off the Opry? Well, the story is that um, in 1941, the, that BMI... And, and a couple other songwriting performance royalty-bearing agencies determined that you could make more money if you did their catalog on the radio because of new broadcast copyright laws that would were royalty-bearing. And the Opry says that they said to D. Ford, 
if you're going to stay on the Opry, you have to do a new catalog of songs. And D. Ford said, well, I only play the songs I play. Uh, and then after he was then dismissed, they said that he was sullen in his work ethic as attributed to men of his color. Mm. That was the quote from the, the Honorable Judge D. Hay, who was the, the longtime radio voice of the Grand Ole Opry. So they basically, you know, they blackballed him, and he lived another 40 years and eventually moved into federal housing. He ran a, a successful shoeshine business. And then in the um, late 70s, they started bringing him back to the Opry in kind of token roles. Old-timer show and, yeah. Mm -hmm. There was a, a, a folklorist who um, discovered him who's since become a, a friend of mine named David Morton, who was working for uh, HUD. And um, he was, you know, a, a, a college grad, white kid, maybe at Vanderbilt or something, new employee that summer for HUD. And he's going around in the housing projects, checking in with residents. And somebody said he liked music. And some old lady said to him, well, if you like music, you need to go up to the eighth floor. Well, D. Ford Bailey lives there. <laughs> and he comes back home and to his dad in Alabama. His dad was born, you know, in, in the teens or something. And he said, oh, yeah, I just met this old black gentleman, plays a harmonica. Oh, what's his name? D. Ford Bailey. You met D. Ford Bailey? He's still alive? Because this guy, David Morton's father, had listened to the Opry in the 20s and knew that D. Ford was a legend. Uh, and so D. D. Ford told David that he felt that God had called them together so that D. Ford's story could finally be retold uh, and, and, and that D. Ford could finally say his piece. And so he wrote a book. He made a record. All of these things happened in the, 19, in the year 1980. I think he died in about 1982. Mm -hmm. But I think the most moving thing for the whole story about me was I wanted to write a song about D. Ford ever since I came to Nashville. But I never felt like it'd be appropriate for me as a white country guy to sing that song. And when Jerry and I got together, I mean, Jerry can write any song Jerry wants to write, but I thought that this might be a good song, and Jerry helped me finish it, and then tell him about our trip after we both got COVID over Christmas. Oh, yeah. So we got COVID three days before Christmas, and, um, and you know, we were just constantly checking in on each other because we both had to be isolated. And uh, and I said, you know, it's kind of nice today. You want to go for a walk? And he was like, yeah, let's go to a cemetery. And uh, I had a cousin that had just passed three days before we had COVID. So I was like, I wanted to go out there. My mom's buried. Green, uh, Greenwood Cemetery is the second oldest uh, African-American cemetery in Nashville. So I've, I've got a lot of family out there. And yeah, he, you know, I said, how about Greenwood? And he was like, perfect. So we met at Greenwood and, and I said, I, you know, I looked up, you can do Grave Finder, found out where D. Ford Bailey's grave was. And first we went to D. Ford Bailey Jr. and saw his grave, which is actually really close to one of my uncles. But then D. Ford's is right kind of in the front, which is really like two feet over from an aunt of mine. It's across the way from my mom and my granddad, you know, like, so there was just all this there was this energy there that, you know, like all of a sudden it's like, even though we had to get COVID to experience it, you know, like we were, we were right there. Like we were in the presence of country music, African-American history, like a, a legend, you know, like right there in such close proximity to, you know, like to my family and like potentially I haven't decided if I wanted to be buried, but like if I did, that's where I would go, you know, so so, yeah, like it just it seemed like we were on the right track for what we were trying to do. Like I said, resurrecting this um, the story and the life of this fallen soldier in, in the, the early scapes of country music. So and we go out and we play the song and, and you know, like a lot of people don't really know about uh, D. Ford Bailey. And, and, and I feel like now it's become up to us to to educate crowds and any, anybody who wants to, you know, like either one of us can can talk about it for days because like it's just it's important. And what you would hope the Opry is fighting for, like this all inclusive diversity, you know, like you when you ever you're out and you see something happen, you're like, there's so much that can be done or like you're in a situation and you just don't know what to do. And you're just thinking in your head, like there's so much, like there's just so much work to do. That's how I feel about D4 Bailey. There's so much work to do to, to bring 
the righteousness back to to restore, you know. It's very symbolic of of what's um, happened in in the Nashville music story, uh, which has um, operated in by an apartheid like playbook and addressing the issues in country music in general. You know, like that people blindly, you know, like wade through. I have no choice but to acknowledge it. But for some other people, you know, like they they can acknowledge it. Except when, uh, you know, like when it's not beneficial to them, you know, so like I kind of feel like we're we're stuck where we have to be on the side fighting for it. And then other people can fight for it when it's convenient and then pull back, you know, like I only got the fight. That's all I got. Well, we're fighting to make sure that everybody understands what happened to D Ford and that it can never happen again. And it's just important to recognize it. You know, there's a, a kind of reckoning that's on in in all all of the institutions of the of our country right now mm-hmm. and and Nashville is is also one and that and the reckoning is on in that in the music business in Nashville and it needs to be recently the NAMAM the National African American Music Museum opened up it's three three blocks across the street from the Country Music Hall of Fame and Museum and that it, it suggests to me that and I love NAMAM and I love the Country Music Hall of Fame but country music is black music, mm-hmm. and black music is country music. Right, that's what Ray Charles One said. One and the same, yeah. Can I talk about a couple other songs? Sure. A lot of politics in this record. Um, we just talked a bit about racial politics. Can you tell me a bit about Glory Land? Sure. That that feels like a, a kind of pandemic song. You know, I talked about my love of Bob Dylan. One of my favorite periods of Bob's artistic expression is in the 70s with the Rolling Thunder Review. I love that big band and Scarlett Riviera on the fiddle and Joan Baez singing and Roger McGuinn back there beating on a tom-tom or something and Ringo somewhere nearby. (laughs) (laughs) You know, just the kaleidoscope and the party. So that was sort of sonically what we were going after the way we recorded it. And it's a song that Critter and I wrote early, you know, before the pandemic. It's an older song that always felt a little too rock and roll for any of the Old Crow records that it would have been around for, but uh, has the seems to have predicted the global shutdown pretty well. I think mm-hmm. we wrote that song in, I don't know, maybe 2015 or something. Uh, I was just waiting for 2020 to, to hit home. A very different song is the new Mississippi flag. It's a very beautiful song. Tell me about that. During the pandemic, you know, there was a lot of things to to get down about, you know, and um, when George Floyd got murdered, me and Jerry were together. Anyway, there just felt like everything was coming apart. But I heard one story I really liked, and it was a story I'd been hoping for, and that the flag of the rebel flag was coming down finally in Mississippi. You know, there has to be an alpha and omega in all of this. Virginia might have been the first place to have a black governor in the South or anywhere in in the United States, but somebody had to be the last one to lower the rebel flag. And it's Mississippi, and it's long overdue. Uh, And so I I got so excited about it that I was shouting, and my kids said, hush, what are you you so excited about? And they were watching TV, and they came, and I said, put it on pause, you have to hear this. And they all, what's going on, Dad? They're bringing down the rebel flag in Mississippi. And here's why it matters. And and then I was talking to my kid in the bed, and he said, out of the blue, what's going to be on the new one? I said, what? The new flag. What is it going to look like? And I thought it was the most wonderful question. And so I thought with a song I could explain, what will the new Mississippi flag look like? And I I just want to bring a new Mississippi flag up everywhere. I want to bring one up in country music in Nashville, Tennessee. I want to bring one up in Virginia and New Hampshire and over the grave of John Brown. Let's stitch something new, states. Hallelujah. You've got great lyrics in that song. Oh, I just dreamed them all up. I put Elvis in there for Big Boy Crudup. (laughs) (laughs) I would have liked to put Arthur in there, but he was from Memphis. Uh, uh, Eudora Welty's in there? Yeah, I went to her house. I'm a big fan, especially of Delta Wedding. Yeah, I put put Charlie Pride in there, who died of COVID. 
and um, was always our biggest champion at the Grand Ole Opry, him and little Jimmy. You know, the the winter before COVID, he was on the Opry, and we got together, and he held my children, and we talked about baseball, and, you know, we were friends. It was so such a happy, happy memory. It's like having Merle Haggard whisper in your ear when Charlie Pride puts his arms around your kid. Yeah. What kind of guy was he? Oh, a wonderful guy, an amazing performer. His voice was so good. He was very kind, very willing to talk, loved history, and had a kind of numerological sensibility. I remember when we joined the Opry, he came up to us a month later, and he said, I understand you guys, you fellas joined the Grand Old Opry on September 12th, 2012. That means, and then he like brought it back to something that had happened in the 70s. He was so attuned to the numbers. Mm-hmm. His legacy will be felt at the Grand Ole Opry and in Nashville country music eternally. Well, let's play one for him then. You want to do Paint This Town? Yeah, that'd be great. Hey, how about we start it like we do it regularly? Yeah, so everybody comes out on the stage, you know, and... Bands all there. Just imagine a six-piece like the Clash with more banjo. Ever since I was a young boy, I had a wandering soul. I walked and crawled across six state lines By the time I was eight years old And landed in some cornfield They caught a town on the grove So I climbed up on that water tower, man But the city was a no-show And that's when I spied you And we didn't mind on that truck stops, driving stops We were teenage troubadours Hopping on boxcars For a hell of a one-way ride It's just a waffle house jukebox My brains are scattered around And one of these days You and me, babe We're gonna spill the whole bucket And paint this town For all glory Painted blue for the cops Tailing your old man Ford Shimmy up down power lines And paint some anarchy signs That's what you do When you're 15 years old Well painted yellow for a warning They'll never take us alive Now we giving our hearts To this heartbreak city Where far kids go to make out or die Like it used to In a state mist By more than a mile Still all these Taylor Park kids They grow up thinking This is the place They will survive And you and me, babe We faded away Like the yearbook page foretold And now all I got left Is the dirt under my fingernails From when we went Digging for gold It's just a waffle house jukebox Bright lights are spinning around But one of these days They just might light your way Make you spill the whole damn bucket And paint this town Paint this town 
Catch Secor, Jerry Pentecost. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Thanks to Old Crow's Catch Secor and Jerry Pentecost for playing the title track off their new album, Paint This Town, and for sharing their inspiration and stories with us. To hear our favorite Old Crow Medicine Show songs, check out the playlist at brokenrecordpodcast.com. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash brokenrecordpodcast where you can find all of our new episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at Broken Record. Broken Record is produced with help from Leah Rose, Jason Gambrell, Ben Tolliday, Eric Sandler, and Jennifer Sanchez with engineering help from Nick Chafee. Our executive producer is Mia LaBelle. Broken Record is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you like this show and others from Pushkin, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus. Pushkin Plus is a podcast subscription that offers bonus content and uninterrupted ad-free listening for $4.99 a month. Look for Pushkin Plus on Apple Podcast subscriptions. And if you like the show, please remember to share, rate, and review us on your podcast app. Our theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there.